0: The last time Elisa Lam was seen, she was wearing a red hoodie and a white shirt, along with large men's black shorts. In the elevator of the Cecil Hotel, we can see that she's wearing this outfit. And as I mentioned in part one, this outfit is identical to a character called Cecilia in a horror movie called Dark Water, where a woman ends up dead in a water tower on the roof of a building just like Elisa. The movie also has a very creepy elevator scene with a young woman dressed identical to Elisa in the elevator. What happened to Elisa is almost identical to this horror movie, but the movie was made before Elisa's death. The movie was released in 2005. Elisa died in 2013. In the movie, the characters Cecilia and Dahlia Can't help but notice the dark water starts running out of the taps of their apartment and when Dahlia goes up to the roof, she finds a girl's body floating in the water tower, just like at the Cecil Hotel. But how can it be that a movie released before Elisa vanished seems to mimic so exactly the last known hours of Elisa's life, even down to the exact outfit she's wearing? in an elevator that malfunctions, like the Cecil elevator. Naming one character Cecilia and the other Dahlia perhaps makes us think about the infamous Black Dahlia case in LA, and there does seem to be similarities between Elisa Lamb and the Black Dahlia victim, Elizabeth Short. Some say that the Cecil Hotel where Elisa vanished was the last place Elizabeth Short was seen, but that's not definite. It could have been another hotel in the same area, but regardless, Elizabeth Short was a young, aspiring actress who was found mutilated in January 1947. Her face was carved into a Glasgow smile. Her body was drained of blood, cut in half, then washed in gasoline. When a local resident happened across her body, at first they thought it was a store mannequin. Her body was left on display, deliberately to be found and seen. The notorious case of the Black Dahlia As Elizabeth Short came to be known, is an, as yet, still unsolved murder mystery that has beguiled so many. Elisa was washed clean by the water, and some believe she too had been drained of blood, because there was so little blood left in her body that it was not even possible to carry out many of the necessary forensic tests. There are other striking and unsettling similarities between Elisa Lamb and Elizabeth Short. Both were petite, brunette, pretty, both were called names that derived from Elizabeth, both were in their twenties and both sadly suffered from depression. Both were known to travel alone and both had travelled from San Diego to downtown LA just prior to their deaths. Both Elisa and the Black Dahlia vanished after last being seen in a downtown hotel. Both were not reported missing for a number of days before their bodies were found and both died horrifying, inexplicable deaths that would become notorious. Both appeared to have been drained of blood. Both cases went viral. Newspapers around the world and armchair detectives have been fascinated with the mystery of the Black Dahlia. And now Elisa too. Notably, as said, the movie Dark Water has the central character called Dahlia, and Dahlia's young daughter is called Cecilia, so similar to the word Cecil in Elisa's hotel. It would almost seem as though this movie ties the Black Dahlia and Elisa Lamb together in a way that is impossible to explain, other than, this was planned, this was a destiny planned by a cosmic jester, having fun with us, or it was a plan devised and put into play by human hand, with the movie paying sick tribute to the horror of the mutilated Black Dahlia and at the same time providing us with an exclusive preview of the terrible real life fate to come for Elisa who would indeed go on to end up dead in a water tower on the top of a building, as the movie had shown us. Was this movie influenced to be made by people who knew very well what was to happen to Elisa at some point in the future? If so, who would these people be? And did their connections span eons of the intergenerational esoteric evil? Surely that's just nonsense, isn't it? Yet yeah, there is much more to come. Elizabeth Short's murderer has never been found. Elisa Lam's coroner's report noted that sand particles were found attached to her clothes. No one knows where these came from. Her hyoid bone and larynx were intact, indicating no strangulation had occurred. There was no vaginal trauma. Toxicology determined there was no acute drug or alcohol intoxication, but there was limited blood available. Reports say decedent had a history of bipolar disorder for which she was prescribed medication. Toxicology studies were performed for the presence of these drugs. However, quantitation in the blood was not performed due to the limited sample availability, the coroner's report says. Had all the blood in her body seeped out of her from the quarter-inch abrasion on her leg? Or had she been drained of blood? like the black dahlia. Well, BBC Science says, because water is dense and a good solvent, fast-flowing water might wash away the clotting factors before a stable clot can form on an external cut. Was her quarter-inch cut large enough for all the blood in her body to drain out? Or had she been exsanguinated in some ghastly, forbidden occult ritual? The coroner's report says toxicology results were not exhaustive, due to limited blood. Yet, police investigating did not show evidence of foul play, says the summary prepared by the Los Angeles County Coroner, and it continues, A full review of the circumstances of the case and appropriate consultation do not support intent to harm oneself. They determined then that she had not willingly committed suicide. However, they say, the manner of death is classed as accident according to James P. Tover, Associate Deputy Medical Examiner. This was, however, later changed to undetermined. The preliminary field report says that the original scene was not disturbed. Elisa was found in the afternoon on February 19th, 2013. She had last been known alive on January 31st, 2013. She was missing for 18 days. Her body showed moderate decomposition at the scene. However, on examination at the coroner's office, she was determined to be in an advanced state of decomposition. And so it seems she had been dead for some time. Her clothes were sapping wet. Her watch and hotel keycard were also found in the water. A sexual assault kit was noted to rule out any sexual assault, although the results were not given at the time. A fingernail kit was used to retrieve any evidence of self-defence and any possible perpetrator DNA, but neither were found. A criminalist report, as part of the LA County Department of Coroners Medical Examiner's report, states LAPD Robbery Homicide Division took the lead on her case with Detective Tenelle Stearns. The report says, Video surveillance camera in the hotel shows the decedent in an elevator at the hotel, exhibiting strange behaviour. No other people seen in the video and it does not appear that she is being chased or in distress, they determine. The video is reported to be from the 2nd of the 1st, 2013. Detective Tenelle Stearns reported, 911 and firefighters were called after the decedent was found in the rooftop water tank by a maintenance worker when sent to check the water tanks after complaints of poor water pressure. The coroner's report says, there was an unsecured metal removable hatch on the top of the tank. Clothes and shoes were found in the tank. There had been a passage of time between her disappearance and the discovery of her body. time in which DNA could blow away, perhaps. Although inside the tank, any foreign DNA would surely have been trapped. Toxicology tested for cocaine, marijuana, amphetamine, methamphetamine, MDMA, morphine, barbiturates. None were detected in ELISA. Just a very small amount of ibuprofen. In her luggage, some of her prescribed medication was found. These included Advil, Lamotrigine, Quetapine and Venlaxaphine. Many of the prescriptions had been refilled in the month prior to her death, which would seem to indicate she must have been taking her meds in the weeks prior to her death, although Elisa appeared to have probably missed a couple of doses at some point. Despite there being no evidence of any person chasing Elisa, according to the LAPD, The hotel seems to have been severely lacking in security cameras. Had she fled a hotel room after being subjected to an attempted or partial sexual assault, managed to flee and got onto the rooftop to hide? Surely though, even in fear of one's life, there would have been other places to hide rather than to go up onto the roof, climb a ladder and enter the water tank with no obvious easy way of climbing back out. Screaming while fleeing might have been more effective, and one or two guests later said they thought they heard a scream, yet any other cries for help may have been drowned out by the general noise. Elisa was staying in a hostel-type room, however, the other occupants of the room requested that Elisa be moved because she was acting strangely. And so the hotel management had moved her to a private room. She'd first been assigned room 506B. The hotel manager indicated that she had started leaving post it notes on some of the other people's beds, which said, Please leave. The Cecil Hotel, now closed, was not a high class, expensive hotel, and there had been incidents of disturbances or criminal behavior in the past, as in any budget hotel. Police said they frequently responded to calls relating to domestic abuse and narcotics. There was worse though. In 1964, Pigeon Goldie, as she was known, was found raped, mutilated and strangled to death in her room in the hotel. In 1984, serial killer Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, called this hotel his home as he conducted a murderous spree claiming 13 victims said investigator Richard Shave. He was dumping his bloody clothes in the dumpster at the end of his evenings and returning via the back entrance. In 1991, Johann Untweger killed three prostitutes in his room at the Cecil Hotel. The hotel was once an elegant place when it first opened. With its marbled lobby, its art deco elegance, period chandeliers and stained glass with the residency of two known serial killers and the disturbingly high number of suicides that have taken place in the hotel, are all these negative energies, auras, and emotions trapped inside the building itself? Is it a place that dark energies in the ether are naturally drawn to, to congregate and feed off? Could the hotel itself is cursed? Are people drawn to this hotel as though lured to it? Perhaps Elisa's death, though, was part of a serial killer's quest, but it could just as easily have been a crime of opportunism by a random, solitary and as yet uncaptured killer. Indeed, an unsought-after killer too at this point and a killer on the loose because her case has been closed. Was someone covering her mouth and it helped her climb into the water tower? Yet police say no DNA was found at the scene. Perhaps she saw something she shouldn't have. In her blog, Elisa wrote, I do like people watching at the hostel. She wrote this during her San Diego stay, but it could equally apply to the hotel in Los Angeles too. Maybe she was up on the roof, taking in the night air and the skyline of LA, feeling a bit lonely, maybe depressed. And other people were up there, up to something bad, and she saw them. She couldn't be allowed to live. And yet, why wouldn't these people do whatever it was they were doing in a room in the hotel instead of up on the roof? Perhaps it was an employee on the roof that night. It was said that the only functioning security camera was the one in the elevator, which seems very strange, and if so, how could they know whether Elisa had been chased or abducted? Although police dogs were brought in during the search for her after she vanished, Detective Tynos said they did not enter all the bedrooms as they would have had to have had a warrant. We do not definitively know if she had been kept in a room or why the dogs did not pick up on her scent. We do not know how close to the water tower the dogs searched. The lid to the tank was open when she was found. Would a killer have left it open or wouldn't they care? After all, if a killer put her body in the water tank, they must have known at some point she would be found or perhaps they didn't understand that her body would affect the water in the ghastly way that it did. Possibly they believe putting her in a water tank would wash away any DNA they'd left on her body and her body would not be found. And yet the two homicide detectives who went to the scene after she was found said there was no DNA on the tank itself, which they believe pointed to it being impossible for a perpetrator to have carried her or forced her up the ladder and into the tank without leaving any incriminating DNA behind. Suicide victims do sometimes remove clothes. It's very common, for some reason, for those who kill themselves by wading into water to take off their clothes before they do so. Strangely, those that do, very often also place their clothes in a neat pile before drowning themselves. But Elisa's clothes were found with her in the water tower, not piled neatly outside of it. Some believe that the elevator footage has been tampered with. Approximately one minute is missing. Was this the police? Or someone else? If it was the police, what was happening in the one minute cut from the footage that they didn't want us to see? Some believe the elevator has been tampered with, that her killer disabled it in some way, then played cat and mouse with her. But it was an old elevator, and these are notoriously slow, laborious and unresponsive. She had pressed so many buttons that the elevator would not have responded well to this. The elevator door failed to close fast and move because she had pressed the buttons too much. Some of her behaviour in the elevator could also be put down to her short-sightedness and her missing glasses, perhaps. Why was she not wearing her glasses, though? She needed them. Would she willingly walk around without her glasses on late at night in an environment that was foreign to her? Could she see the buttons in the lift when she was pressing them, without her glasses? Was that why she was pressing the numbers, because she couldn't see them properly? We could also add, could she safely climb a 15-foot ladder on a rooftop and climb into a water tower without her glasses, without having an accident? The buttons Elisa pressed in the elevator were 1410 seven, four, b Were these simply random in her effort to get the elevator to respond and start moving? But perhaps it's odd that all these numbers seem to relate to water in Bible verses from John 4. But the Bible is such a large tome, surely verses could be plucked out that could relate to any scenario. And this is simply taking things too far now. Elisa pressed 4, 7. In John 4, verse 7, it says, A woman came from Samaria to draw water. She pressed four ten In John, verse four ten. it says, Give me a drink. She pressed four fourteen In John 4, verse 14, it says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is all very spooky, and yet, surely for it to have any real meaning, Elisa would have had to have been party to it, for she was the one who pressed the elevator buttons in that sequence. And that makes no sense at all. Her behavior of putting her arms out in the elevator as if feeling for something inside the elevator, as though a phantasm were pursuing her, could perhaps more rationally be explained by her confusion as to why the elevator simply would not close and descend as she wished it to. And her hands, perhaps, rather than feeling for something, were attempting to trigger the sensor she believed might be in the elevator to make it move. Could she have been thinking the elevator was operated by infrared and sensitive to movement and she was simply trying to trigger the sensors into making the elevator work faster and get the doors close? She'd probably never been in such an old elevator and perhaps she was trying to apply modern elevators to this old one. So her stepping in and out of the elevator and then moving to stand right in the corner of it was perhaps her attempt to get out of the way of the sensors to get it to reset and move. We see her poking her head out of the elevator, peering around, quickly getting back in, standing in the corner, as though playing peekaboo with someone, or trying to hide from someone outside in the corridor. But what if she thought she needed to move out of the way or out of sight of an imagined sensor to activate the elevator to start working again? Did she then give up on it and take the stairs instead? Did she meet her killer on the stairs, who would take the stairs in a hotel? For this might point to a possible suspect type, staff perhaps, and regulars who knew the elevator was slow and unwieldy, or impatient, fit, youngish guests, although even a man in his 50s or 60s, if fit, may consider walking the stairs instead of patiently waiting for an old slow elevator. Is there also the possibility she had deliberately pressed all the buttons and was jumping in and out of the elevator because she was delaying the elevator purposely? Was she making her way down to the lobby to meet a date? If you read Elisa's blog, you can see that she's clearly very shy and perhaps she had pressed the buttons knowing it would buy her a few more seconds in an effort to compose herself before she met up with her date in the lobby. Perhaps her first date was someone that she really didn't know. Her mind might have been full of self-questioning. Do I look okay? Does my hair look alright? Will he like me? What will we talk about? What if it all goes wrong? It seems that there might have been a mirror in the hotel corridor by the lift. Was she simply buying herself time, trying to compose herself to make a good impression? She'd lost her phone just prior to her disappearance, so were not able to track who she had been talking with or who she might have met up in the days leading to her death. On the 11th of the 11th, around a year before she went to LA, she met someone. On her blog she wrote, Now I have a person who makes me smile deliriously. I still think it's too good to be true. I may be young, but I've always thought of love to be like the ending of Drive. She means the movie Drive. Well, the ending of Drive is exceptionally poignant and sad. She writes, I feel so lucky that I met such a wonderful, awesome guy. He makes what pain and anger I felt meaningless. What broken heart, why would I ever think of killing myself, she writes. This man, a year earlier, was never mentioned again, and she was believed to be single when she arrived in LA. Very interestingly, in this 12-month earlier blog post, Elisa mentions suicide, albeit dismissing it, but a year on, in LA, had her depression become too much for her, but surely... She would not have wanted to inflict such a horrible death upon herself or the other guests by dying in the same way as the victim in dark water. And her pills provided the perfect suicide tool, or jumping from the rooftop, rather than how she really died. Even if she had become mentally unstable or psychotic, why go to such physical effort as to climb a huge ladder and jump into a water tank? What would even make her think of the water tank? There's nothing in Elisa's character that would even suggest she would think of anything quite so awful. Would Elisa have climbed an external fire escape in the dark alone in a fit of despair? It's possible. In her blog she writes, I have missed three weeks of class since my sleeping pattern is completely reversed. This was a few months prior to her trip to LA. And she says, When I cannot fall asleep at night, I'm left to wander downtown. And yet, a wander downtown is a little different to climbing a ladder on a roof, stripping and jumping into cold water to die. To fall in accidentally also doesn't make much sense. In her blog, she neither came across as a thrill seeker or a daredevil. But she does show crippling depression at times. In her third to last blog post, she writes, I had a relapse at the start of term and had to drop two of the three courses. I feel so empty. Her last post reads, I spent two days in bed hating myself. Why don't I do something? It isn't rocket science. It isn't difficult. Get out of bed. Eat. See people. Talk to people. Exercise. It's obvious she's feeling very low here. Yet this doesn't sound like the sort of person to climb onto a rooftop and climb a water tower alone. That would need significant motivation, significant lack of lethargy, and much physical effort. Although Elisa also posted this in December 2013. The astonishing precipice, one side of which the soul was active and in broad daylight, on the other side, it was contemplative and dark as night. It's a quote from the author Virginia Woolf, who on March 28th, 1941, filled her coat pockets with rocks, walked out of her house and into the River ooze. The depression which had followed her like a shadow in her adult life had finally caught up with her. She drowned herself. Elisa had also posted about how her medication made her feel sometimes, particularly in her earlier days of taking it. At times, she had written that her meds, when first taking them, made her feel sluggish. In 2010 she says School has started And it doesn't help that I can't think It took a long, unaccounted for break from school Half a year down the drain Where I did not do anything productive Nor learn anything worth knowing Now it seems my once prized organ No longer works the way it once did I feel sluggish all day Sleepy, mopey And tired, unable to concentrate What once came naturally Is now beyond hard to grasp I won't be able to put together a proper post for a while, then again who cares whether or not it makes any sense. In another post we learn much more about the way she sometimes feels, as a result presumably from taking her meds for bipolar disorder. I've been having headaches for the past two days and my vision shakes when I stand. I'm not sure if it's vertigo but I definitely do not feel stable even when sitting. It also gets hard to focus at times. I can't seem to process the whole scene, almost like tunnel vision on a handheld camera. Could Elisa have been suffering the same symptoms on the night she is captured on film in the elevator? Was her vision and sense of balance all out of sync? Is this why she was making strange hand gestures, trying to feel her way in the elevator? Was her vision all funny? If this is so, it would seem really strange then, to imagine, that she could, or would want to make it up an external fire escape onto a very high roof, climb a ladder, jump into a water tank. It's not a route someone could take by accident, and it's not a route someone would choose to take when they feel dizzy, nauseous, vertigo, unable to focus, and shaky. It would, however, make someone the perfect victim, completely vulnerable and defenceless. What more can we learn of Elisa? Who really was she? We know she loved fashion and it seems she wanted to be a known writer. On 10.11.11 she wrote, All I'm doing is publishing writing under my own name, the thing I've wanted to do most in the world since I was six. Interestingly, she adds, Why should some imagined psycho stop me from doing what I love? But before we start thinking that she's talking about a physical stalker, it becomes very clear from reading her blog that she's not talking of someone physically following her, which of course, if she had been, would certainly have made something the police could have followed up on. But rather, she's talking online harassment, trolling, and the effect it was having on her life. Whether she'd actually been trolled, she doesn't explicitly say, and her blog was not a well-known one. But her shyness and introversion and the intrusive results that come from being public online seemed, understandably, to create a perfect storm in her already stressed mind. She had a deep fear of being judged or of not being able to meet the expectation of others when she published online. She wrote under her real name, she said, and she wanted to make her own mark, but it also felt overwhelming for her too. She wasn't a known blogger with millions of followers, but even so, the pressure she felt was very tangible. She reblogged this. The lack of ethics and boundaries on the internet can be alarming. Trolling knows no boundaries. There is no place it won't work or go so long as they make their demonstration of power. On another occasion, she writes... I think part of my reluctance or lack of wanting to be more proactive on my blog is because I'm gun shy of putting myself out on the internet. It's a wonderful but scary place full of judgement. She also reblogged. I don't ever want to feel I need to impress anyone on the internet or in real life. It's too much pressure. I don't want to feel forced to update out of fear of losing readers. Like most young people now, creating a presence online or interacting online seems only to add more to the social pressures they may already be feeling. Are they interesting enough? Pretty enough? How many followers have they got? Elisa comes across as a charming, quirky and intelligent young lady. Mental illness and all. She was a girl who wanted to leave her own individual mark, but being online did not come naturally to her. On the 22nd of the 4th, 2012, her last post, she writes, I'll be judged. I can't do it. It will be a complete, utter disaster. And no one will care about it. And of course, the point of doing everything is to get attention and praise from other people. Yeah, I need to get the most followers and the most views. And by doing that, I have to promote myself and become a phony and panda-like hell. Good job you're really following all the ideals you hold so well. You want to be the best, the one with the best clothes, the best outfits, the best, the best, the best. You can't be the best, you're just a nobody, part of the crowd. You don't create anything, you don't contribute, you just stay at home and observe. You're not that special. The only thing that does make you different is that you're a complete, utter failure. She is saying this to herself, starkly chastising herself because she's suffering the pressures of social media and the way the online world has replaced our reality of how the world was without it. Is it possible she simply gave up on that night in LA, that the pressure to come someone online was far too much for her ever to be able to achieve, and she couldn't take the stress, the competition, the exposure? She also comments on her blog, Despite being very outgoing, I'm an introvert and have difficulty making friends. Elisa is more an observer than a participant. She likes to people watch, she says, when staying at the hostel in San Diego. She's more comfortable in the background. She wants to be like everyone else, confident, outgoing, popular, followed. But she has a tendency to hide herself away. Much has been made in conspiracy forums of one of Elisa's tweets. It's about invisibility. 18 days before she disappeared, Elisa tweeted about an online article published by the Huffington Post which described a Canadian company who had been awarded funding from the Pentagon to develop quantum stealth camouflage for soldiers, which renders them invisible. The article said stealth biotechnology has developed quantum stealth, a type of camouflage that bends light around the wearer or an object to create the illusion of invisibility. This camouflage creates the illusion that a person is not there, they become invisible. In that respect, a soldier or a civilian could truly become the invisible man. An invisible predator capable of stalking an unsuspecting victim, like Elisa perhaps, who would be powerless to see them coming. And where better to test such equipment than at a downtown hotel rumoured to be one of the most haunted places in the world, or full of people that have criminal pasts? A place where multiple people have killed themselves or been murdered by resident serial killers. We watch her floundering, grasping with her hands out in front of her, trying to feel for something that she knows is there but can't see. But that's ridiculous, surely. Well, CEO of Hyperstealth Biotechnology guy Kramer said, unless you walked right into them, you wouldn't know that they were there. Why would Elisa post this tweet about this invisibility cloak? given that she wasn't a prolific tweeter at all and then coincidentally find herself stalked by a hunter who is cloaked in invisibility. This surely couldn't have been what was really happening in that elevator though. Surely that's too fantastical? Although this equipment is indeed being developed and funded, including by the US Pentagon. But maybe we should also consider that Elisa loved to read and she loved books, including the Harry Potter series. Maybe she was referring to how great it would have been to have had an invisibility cloak, like the fabled Deathly Hallows, Magical Artifact. The cloak of invisibility in the Harry Potter books, and so perhaps the answer to this tweet, lies in Elisa's own mind. Elisa's introversion and her shyness, as noted from her blog posts, had such a crippling effect on her at times. During her travels, she chastises herself for doing nothing more than sleeping and showering, telling herself she must go out the next day and see the sights. In San Diego, she wrote, Today I slept, took a long hot shower. It has been most productive and enjoyable. I seriously have done nothing in San Diego that is out of my normal routine at home. Now that I'm well and rested, I should venture outside more. So she hid herself away from everyone. Perhaps, perhaps, The fantasy of having the ability to turn herself invisible was what she was really looking for. Yet she yearned for company too. She wrote, I feel so empty. What is the purpose of owning nicely curated closet if there's no place to wear it? What's the purpose of reading countless articles if there's no one to discuss it with? Ultimately, she was achingly lonely. Poignantly and rather ironically, if anything can come out of her tragic death, it's the comfort she gave, unwittingly, to others online after her death. Which perhaps isn't widely reported on. After her death, a person called Josh wrote to her on her blog. He said, I'm turning 15 in a few months. Although I never would have known you, I knew we would have been great friends if our paths had crossed The thing that disappoints me is that although there is a large age gap, the similarity between you and me was unbearable. I had seen a reflection of myself. A girl that understood, that would have understood me. All we both wanted is someone there. Another man writes, I'm sobbing. I'm only 14, but the thoughts you had, the emotions you felt, I understand you. I cannot believe the literal heartache I'm currently feeling. The loss of a soulmate is what it feels like. And it hurts me so much to know that can never happen. I don't have anyone who I thought understood me, but I know you did. And that puts me to ease. All it would have taken was a friend. Someone who would be there for you and remind you that it's okay. But it looks like that person never came. I feel so upset typing this. Happy that I found someone like me. Upset because I lost someone. You've touched many lives Elisa, probably even saved a lot of people too. On the last day of Elisa's life she wrote or rather reblogged given that it has quotation marks and I'll spell it C-U-N-T again question mark and continues with It was odd how men used that word to demean women when it was the only part of a woman they valued. She's reblogged and posted. What's very strange about this is that while we could perhaps very easily interpret Elisa posting this because a man had perhaps been rude to her that day in a casual encounter, perhaps they'd accidentally bumped into each other on the street or inside the hotel and he had sworn at her, and yet there is some graffiti that's written just beside the water tower where her body was found, and it's clearly visible in the media images of the firefighters up on the roof by the water tower trying to get her body out. The graffiti says, fec tu cunt, her summa, which crudely translates from Latin as, in fact, she was a cunt. A similar graffiti tag was also found not far from the tower with the additional letters 2012. Was the graffiti written there prior to Elisa's death? Again, it's probably just another coincidence, and yet there are so many coincidences in Elisa's case and each one seems laden with explicit symbolism. For example, Elisa Lam was a student at the University of British Columbia, although she had taken time out from her studies and was not actively enrolled at the time she visited LA. However, her university has a centre for tuberculosis research. When Elisa Lam vanished in downtown LA, there was, at exactly the same time, an outbreak of strain-resistant tuberculosis. In fact, the outbreak happened right beside the Cecil Hotel, on Skid Row. Strangely, widely used tuberculosis diagnostic tests for rapid detection is called Lamb Elisa. How odd that Elisa Lamb, at the time of her disappearance, would share the same name as a TB test which could be used for the tuberculosis outbreak that was happening exactly where she was located how could this possibly be? Surely it's simply just uncanny, but there is much more to come. Perhaps we should also note that an anagram of Elisa Lamb is, I am seal. The seven seals in the Bible saw the arrival of the four horses of Apocalypse from the book of Revelation. It tells of a scroll held in God's right hand, sealed by seven seals. The Lamb with Elisa's surname being, of course, the Lamb, opens the first four of the seven seals, which summons four beings who ride out on horses. The first horseman, who rides out on a white horse, is often referred to as pestilence and represents infectious disease or plague, such as tuberculosis. Evangelist Billy Graham also interpreted the first horseman as the Antichrist, interestingly. Well, Skid Row, next door to the Cecil Hotel in LA, was experiencing a plague outbreak. Across the pond in London, England, another Cecil Hotel once stood. In marked comparison to the budget accommodation of Elisa Lamb's Cecil Hotel, the London Cecil Hotel was the epitome of luxury and refinement. It was built in 1886 with stone and red brick. As a high-class and very expensive luxury hotel. It had a built-in Masonic Hall. It was at this hotel that one of the most infamous men in England, Alistair Crowley, known as the Beast or the wickedest man in the world, took up residence in 1889. In his book The Confessions of Alistair Crowley, we know that he took a room in the Cecil Hotel there and he says, busied myself with writing on the one hand and following up the magical clues on the other. Jephthah and other poems were written about this period. It is a kind of backwater in my life. I was the more ready to be swept away by the first definite current. It was not long before it caught me. Well, Crowley was introduced to George Cecil Jones, a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn at the Cecil Hotel there. And through Cecil Jones, Crowley was introduced to the book of the sacred magic of Abramelin the mage. At this Cecil Hotel, Crowley was initiated into the outer order of the Golden Dawn by its leader Samuel Liddell MacGregor Mathers. And here, at this Cecil Hotel, Crowley wrote the work, Jepfer, Collected Works Volume 1. He begins with a dedication quoting Il Penseroso, a poem by John Milton of Paradise Lost. It says, Let my lamp at midnight hour be seen in some high lonely tower and of those demons that are found. Some think this is a foreboding and oblique reference to the tower in which Elisa was found drowned at the other Cecil Hotel in LA. In the poem, the character Jetha is a judge who is featured in the Hebrew Bible and the pseudo-Philo works, an ancient biblical text. This judge offers his daughter as a willing sacrifice. His daughter was called Sila, which happens to be an anagram of Elisa. Was Elisa someone's willing sacrifice? Was there some great occult meaning revealed in plain sight in a ritual drowning of Elisa Lamb? In his Jephthah book Crowley also writes an invocation of a spiritual resurrection. He says, Then rose thy spirit through the shaken skies. Child of the dawn, I say to thee, arise, let there be light. The desecrated tomb gaped. The stones rolled back, the charioted night, the splendid forehead crowned with love and light. Now freedom flower at star and wind and wave, and spirit of the unimagined fire may seek her sire. In the pure soul of man, her lips may have, in the pure waters of her desire, truth. Well, another allusion to water again. But of course, poems are often simply metaphorical, and it may be that Crowley was referring to perhaps political strife at the time and the fight for freedom from the system. According to Thelema, a set of magical, mystical and religious beliefs formed by Crowley, in his Amalanthra working of 1918, a magic ritual he devised and conducted, apparently led to the physical manifestation of a channelled entity. Crowley claimed he'd opened up a cosmic portal through this high magic ritual and out came this creature, this interdimensional entity, which was later drawn in a sketch by Crowley and looks remarkably like the later drawings of grey aliens. Well, Crowley named this creature Lamb. Perhaps it may also be interesting to note that Elisa Lamb was born on April the 30th. This is Walpurgis Night the Night of the Witch, sometimes also called Beltane, but most commonly known as Mayday. We may picture the innocent custom of dancing round maypoles, but the ancient druids would sacrifice a human at this time to appease the gods and hope for good harvest. These days, we have an effigy instead of a human being, the Burning Man. On Walpurgis' night in ancient Germanic folklore, a Harlequin figure leads an army of ghosts and lost souls. The Harlequin is the leader of the involuntary dead. He is depicted as a black-faced emissary of the devil. He roams the countryside under the dark of night with his band of demons, seeking the souls of people to carry them to hell. In 1091, a monk called Wakalin claimed he witnessed the wild hunt. An enormous tree trunk was being carried by two men, on which was strapped and bound some wretch tightly trussed suffering tortures. A fearful demon was sitting astride the same tree trunk. The demon was sticking red-hot spurs into the man's loins. This was undoubtedly their Heliquin's army, doomed souls marching through the land, he wrote. Wapurgis Night is the highest day on the druidic witch's calendar, and as midnight strikes, May the 1st is supposedly one of the Illuminati's most sacred holidays, and a human sacrifice is demanded at this time. It is said, but Elisa didn't die on Walpurgis Night. She was born on it. Yet one confidential source I spoke with, who pointed this fact out to me about her birth date, also pointed out to me that there was another very strange death of a young woman not too far away from L.A. This young woman had also been displaying very strange and irrational behavior on the night of her disappearance, just like Elisa had in the elevator, and she too ended up dead. Not long after, it is quite likely that she died in water too. This other young woman was also born on Walpurgis Night. I first wrote about Elisa Lamb case back in two thousand and fourteen in one of my books, and talked about it on my first appearance on Coast to Coast AM in two thousand and fifteen. Well, I was interviewed on another podcast a year or so later, and was asked about the Elisa Lamb case again, after the show had aired. It was posted on YouTube and a person posted a comment below with a link to a video that they'd made about a most remarkable discovery in this case. The video they had made went on to explain that the IP privacy registration of the website for the last bookstore in LA, the last known place that Lisa was on the day of her disappearance, Well, this privacy registration through a company that had the exact same zip code as Elisa Lamb's grave. The last bookstore's website privacy registration had been done through this company prior to Elisa's disappearance. It had been registered on the 19th of the 8th, 2009. Well, Elisa disappeared in January 2013. I checked and this registration was not tampered with or altered after her death. It was filed before her death. The funeral home of Elisa Lamb, Forest Lawn Funeral Home in Vancouver, has exactly the same zip code of V5G3M1 as this domain privacy registration company. That company used by the last bookstore to register their website privacy Well, while this company, of course, registers thousands of companies' websites' privacy, there are also thousands upon thousands of website domain privacy companies that The Last Bookstore could have chosen to use to register their website privacy with. Instead of any of these other thousands of other companies, The Last Bookstore, prior to Elisa's death, chose to register it with a company that has the same zip code exactly as the cemetery where her body now lies. The last bookstore featured, quite predominantly, in the media coverage of the search for Elisa. Their website indirectly points to the exact spot now where her dead body lies. How could this even be possible? Once more, the riddles surrounding Elisa only seemed to get more puzzling, with yet another seemingly impossible coincidence. The person who sent me the message about this called themselves Jesper. A curious Google search of the name Jesper took me to the first result on Google, an article on tuberculosis. Once again, forming some kind of loop back to the tuberculosis outbreak beside the Cecil Hotel. And so the games continue.